From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. The podcast is sponsored by City Lights Brewing Company, an award-winning brewery and taproom set in the historic Milwaukee Gas Company buildings right on the banks of the Menominee River. As you know, I'm a home brewer and an investor in another brewery, which gives me a little more insight than the average beer drinker. I was impressed by the quality of the team and more importantly, their selection of innovative craft beers. You can enjoy a pint in the taproom overlooking the brew house or take in some fresh air in the relaxing beer garden set on the river. They also have a great beer-inspired food menu. Please visit citylightsbrewing.com for more details. When most people think of retirement, they imagine playing golf, traveling to a new destination, or maybe just sitting on the beach with a cool drink in their hand. That's what I used to think, and then I retired. Now I'm probably busier than I was before, and I still haven't found time to work on my golf game. Instead, I'm applying the things I learned as CEO to new and different challenges. I've basically found a second career, or maybe it found me. As I've come to find out, this is not uncommon for retired CEOs, especially those who are fortunate to be able to retire in their early 50s. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with Darren Jackson, another person finding plenty to do in retirement. After a very successful business career and running several large companies, Darren has taken his experience in transforming organizations and focused his energy on a new challenge, education. When I look at industries that are most in need of new solutions, education is also near the top of my list. If you haven't listened to part one, I encourage you to do so, as there is good background that guides this part of our conversation. Through Darren's work with Christo Ray, the Drexel Fund, and All in Milwaukee, he is leading efforts to bring innovative new ideas to improve student access and outcomes. And the results are quite impressive and demonstrate how the principles of innovation can be applied to almost any challenge that we face. There is a quote by Booker T. Washington that says, those who are happiest are those who do the most for others. By this standard, Darren must be a very happy person. Enjoy part two of the conversation as we resume where we left off and focus on Darren's second career. Let's shift a little bit to kind of your second career, um, since you're about as good at being retired as I am. So if you stand back and think about the world today, what do you believe is the problem or the business or the industry that's most in need of innovation? Fundamentally, the two that need the most innovation, easily the healthcare industry needs a level of innovation in terms of customer care, for sure, because there's a real social justice issue in terms of getting care to a broader set of people in need of care. And then the other one I spend 90% of my time on is, is education. And in the education world, I mean, you can pick up a newspaper today and just see, you know, I think we're at a $1.6 trillion going into student loan debt. You go, it's surpassed credit cards. And it's a business where we high five when uh, the six-year graduation rate is 60%. I can't imagine running a business that, you know, and that's six years. I mean, the 
the four-year rate's got to be sub 50%. That just, that wouldn't work in our business world. And, you know, the cost of delivery is one of those things that there's pain today in the system, but in all of our other businesses, Moore's Law has taken over. And we've been able to deliver a better outcome at lower cost. You know, virtually all of our work today is focused in this world of education. And really the work is focused on low income or limited income students and trying to figure out a path that we can dramatically improve the completion rates, dramatically improve the career readiness rates, dramatically reduce the debt rates, and ultimately improve our communities. Clay Christensen, who wrote The Innovator's Dilemma back in 2017, he was quoted, he said that 50% of the 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States will be bankrupt in 10 to 15 years. This should scare the heck out of higher ed. And I still feel like there's some movement, but it just feels to me like there's almost an unwillingness to accept this financial change that's coming. And so what do you... What do you think it's going to take for higher ed to acknowledge that there is a problem and really embrace the idea that they're going to have to change and innovate to be successful? Unfortunately, Chuck, it might be like the financial crisis of 2007. You just have to experience it. I don't know if it's five years, 10 years, 15 or 20, but Clay is absolutely right. You just have to look at, oh, I think the birth rate in 2007 dropped nearly 20% in a year. So you can imagine that pipeline of kids, you can just do the math out 20 years and say, we're going to see this precipitous fall off in terms of college going kids, particularly given our immigration status today. So you can see this culmination. You start with how is the market changing? You know, these schools that exist today in is 4,000, there are schools out there that have less than 1,000 kids in their university. And so, and they are starting to drop. And you have this other reality of the business model that's super hard. And, you know, this, the, the tenure model, on the one hand, I understand why it exists for academic freedom. I don't understand a model that will ultimately cap off its best and brightest from getting to those tenured position because it's lifetime employment. I couldn't run a business where I couldn't find a way to find positions for our best and brightest coming up. So it's got all the clouds, but this one, this one is going to have to experience crisis to find its way out of crisis. And one of the things I've observed is there, there are amazing innovation stories that all start in crisis because it, it changes, it changes all the rules, mm-hmm. right? It, in American higher ed, it's a 200 year old institution. It's got all these, you know, a lot of great things were built into it, but it's got a lot of structure that doesn't work or is inefficient today. You know, you know, I'm doing a lot of work around innovation and, and leadership development, and a lot of universities are talking about this. And so I've been thinking to myself, so you have these institutions that are really kind of anti-change, anti-innovation, right? They're not trying to change at all, yet they have decided they're going to be in the business of teaching people how to lead innovation. And it would seem to me that if I was going to go learn how to do something, I'd want to learn it from someone who actually had done it versus someone who was actually part of an organization that was kind of against it. So what do you think about that discrepancy? It just seems like a really odd place for us to try to be training the future leaders about innovation when they don't want to innovate to start with. Well, I think there's a there's a lot in what you said. I I would guess, knowing the work you're doing here, 
and other parts of this university or universities I've been at, I, I think the human beings that run them actually do embrace innovation. If you think about their life calling, you know, a lot of them start with doing the research, understanding, and they want to solve problems, which is terrific. Now you get down to that issue called resources, process, history. And my, and it, it tends to be more of a guess than actually knowing, is that a lot of those things get in the way. Trying to find the right forums in order to make that happen or the cultural consistency across the university is probably a starting point. You can innovate in a university to differentiate and to get everybody to come along. So an example could be Northeastern University. So if you think, if you're Northeastern and you're out there, you've got some pretty heavy competition. So you had to galvanize around this innovation across the university, which is really their renowned internship programs. Kids come from everywhere to go to this little Northeastern University, you know, right in the backyard of some of the most prestigious universities. But you had to have this galvanizing type of cause to get innovation in the university. You know, one of the challenges I think is that when I look at the many companies I've been studying of where innovation has occurred, it's rarely done through a consensus or shared governance model. And I think one of the tricks of higher ed is, is there's this feeling that everyone's this shared governance, which is essentially another form of consensus. And I think this idea that everyone has a vote, and I get why it exists, but it's not a vehicle of change. I know you were involved in getting Christo Ray to go from, it was basically a one school idea, and you were part of helping it become a, a much more of a, a network of schools. So can you walk us through just briefly what problem you guys had to solve to make this work? Yes. So the the seed of the idea and the innovation was, you know, what we were seeing is all of these high quality high schools, Catholic high schools, closing in the inner city. And so a lot of our Catholic high schools were essentially becoming prep schools for good prep schools, but really hard for, you know, limited income families to attend. And so in order to make the math work, the great innovation in that really came out of a simple idea of we need to pay the bills. Hence, the work-study program was born. And what's really fascinating about it is that it really was born out of financial necessity, or you could say it would have been a crisis because you, you couldn't make it work affordably. And what we discovered was the intangible innovation from it was really this social, emotional development for limited-income kids. And it got the business community to buy in and support it. So from one school and a handful of jobs, there's 3,300 corporate partners today. And it pays for 60% of the bills. And you can either have management rules and processes, or you can have just a set of mission standards. And we really went to a set of 10 simple mission standards and a decentralized model that said, for this thing to work, what our role in life is, is to recognize that we are the stewards of the blueprint, but local innovation can happen as they develop their school 
provided they're within these 10 mission standards. So at the high school level, our graduation rates are north of 90%. Many of our communities, what you see in high school graduation rates, given the zip codes we target, is sub 50%. In a lot of communities that we target, the college enrollment rate might be 30 or 40%, and we're north of 70%. Walk us through how that leads, because I think that leads into some of the work you're doing in two other places. So can you give us a little background on some of the interesting work that Drexel Fund's doing and and how that's trying to take on some innovative ideas in in education? So the the same founders of Cristo Rey, a handful of us got together and formed a venture capital fund. What we said is that what did we learn through Cristo Rey and how can we think about innovation and education for limited income kids that is scalable? Because a lot of times what you'll figure out is you can have great innovation without scalability is ultimately a huge wasted opportunity. We said, why don't we put a venture capital fund together and target the seven states that have either vouchers or tax credits or something like that and go into the communities and identify where innovation is already occurring and invest into that innovation to see if it's scalable to these limited income kids. What we're looking for is where is their great need, where is their innovation and potential scalability. So then, and we'll bring you to the third one, which is all in Milwaukee. So what's the problem you're trying to solve there? The problem there is that uh, we've had this decade and decade and decade long problem in terms of college completion rates for low or limited income kids. So if you look at kids of color over the last almost 40 years, so think Pell Grant recipients, what we've seen is this stubborn college completion rate that hovers around 12%. And part of the issue that we see there is the kids who get started and never finish, they're saddled with this level of debt that they can never get rid of. So that's a little bit of a social justice issue. And and so we said, is there a way to dramatically change those college completion rates? Because if you complete college, it's worth a million dollars over your lifetime. And can we get you placed in a career that you've trained for? And can we do it at a manageable level of student loan debt? And so I bumped into an organization. This is back to, I don't see around corners, but I found this group called Wallen Education Partners that have been working on this problem for 26 years. Average taxable income for the families is under 20000 of our kids are kids of color. They come from the Twin Cities. And, oh, our college completion rate the last five years has exceeded 90% last year, 93. Our career readiness, which is really the kids who graduate and go into a job or go on to their master's degree, is 95%. 80% of them return to the community. It's a big deal. And then 40% of them last year graduated with no debt. And the other 60%, half the Minnesota average, which was around $17,000. And I said to myself, if this was a business and you're achieving 93 and the rest of the world's 12, capital would rush in. I joined their board to try to figure out how this mousetrap worked. And we support a bunch of kids up there. And then I convinced their board that I'll put my own personal capital in, but I want to try it in a different city, which is Milwaukee. And so we came to Milwaukee essentially replicating the work that they have been perfecting for 26 years. And what I see is that if we can do it in the right way, you can have an all-in Raleigh, you can have an all-in Atlanta, that it's scalable because you have to ultimately take innovation down to self-interest 
if you're a university and only 12% of your kids are completing, and now it's 90, you get to collect a revenue stream that you would never have collected before. If you're a community trying to retain diverse talent, you have a self-interest in doing that too. So part of scaling innovation that I've realized in, in these spaces is that coming with a value proposition for people where self-interest is clear and beneficial creates some momentum too. So if you now know it's possible to drive the graduation rate up for these kids that are, you know, frankly, starting out with, with a disadvantage, doesn't it say that there's a business model in higher ed where you could actually build a higher ed system that should increase the completion rate for everyone? There are some that are well ahead on that idea. So Georgia State, the population of students they serve are our kids. So to give you an idea, Chuck, the kids that are in our program here, the 40, the average taxable household income is $9,200. And the reason that's important in the challenge for the university that we have to work on is that these kids have so many other demands. So, you know, I've got a couple that they must work because they are part of the economics of their family. In a university setting, the ones that get it don't have a ratio of advisors of one to a thousand. That is not uncommon. You know, our advisor ratio in, in Minnesota is one to 100. And so, and, and what makes it work is this advisor model. We would have to, and this is part of the, the work, is work with the universities to help them see the value of the, the personal relationships. And the challenge today is that where that will take them is outside the four walls. And within the four walls, you know, take our university. I, I love Marquette. I think we have 90 African-American students in this class of 2000. You know, you think about 90 in 2000, you have to create community too. And so these are all insights that when we work with our universities, we try to send groups of our students to a university as a cohort so they have community. And so there's that work. And, and ultimately, you want to say, boy, let's go take care of those kids. But when they're 90 of 2000, hard. But you know what? That's why you, you just keep chipping away. There's going to be something in there that makes the experience for the university better. So last question is, is there any question that you wish or think we should have talked about while we were here today? Uh, the question I would have said, Chuck, is in innovation, what is the power of no? And what's behind that innovation is that the great innovators that that I have bumped into will tell you time and time again, one of the best responses that I received was no. And no sometimes could take the form of no more resources because innovation is not bound by a checkbook. Innovation a lot of times is only bound by your imagination in a lot of places and that there is the power of no. And so where has the power of no affected innovation in your company? You know, one of our key product strategies was to do whatever 
someone told me we couldn't do. Our lighting business was built around three or four products, and each one of them's original genesis was actually being told it would never work, no one would do it, there's no point to this. And you realize that's your version of no. A lack of resource is really important to innovation because the moment you tell people there's no easy way around it, it, it drives creativity, right? You know, a constraint is actually maybe the starting point of innovation is maybe a way to think about it. You said something about earlier, we were talking about how ego gets in the way. And, you know, I was thinking about myself when you said that. And I know, you know, you were on the board as I was going through my process to decide to, to retire. And, and my original plan at Cree was I committed for three years. And so 16 was far beyond what I, my original commitment was. <laughs> um, and I was asking myself, as you were talking about how a CEO's ego gets in the way, they fall in love with the things they're good at because so many people have told them it's great. And I was asking myself, did it happen to me? And I think it did. And it's actually what led me to all the things I'm doing now. So I was in love with innovation. And this idea of building a company about solving these problems and this, you know, I'll call it a process, people first, process second culture where anything's possible. And that is what had built this company that at the, you know, at the peak was up almost $1.7 billion. That's what made us successful, what made us who we were. And as the company evolved and our markets slowed down and the pressure to, hey, no, you have to run this like a regular company. And it's about predictability. And we'd rather we'd rather have you hit a lower goal, but do it consistently than try to hit home runs. And I remember being really frustrated by that advice. And I don't know that I saw it until I stepped away. I didn't want to do that other job because I like innovation. It's actually what makes me excited. And you know, the best thing that happened to me was realizing the job had changed around me and it wasn't very much fun anymore. I really appreciate you sharing that because, you know, it's something I will take away. I don't know I could have described it before today. So thank you much mm. for that. And more importantly, thank you for being here. Darren, you know, we've known each other a long time. And uh, I told uh, Kyle, the producer, as we were preparing for this, I said, you're going to hear a story about someone who, you know, worked at Nordstrom's and Best Buy and Advanced mm. Auto Parts. You're going to be going, I thought we're doing an innovation show. And I said, when you hear this, you're going to hear innovation in a way that I think we just too often get overlooked. And your story, whether it be the things you did in your business career or you're doing hmm. in your second career around education are just, they are some of the most powerful and amazing innovation stories. And I cannot wait for people to hear this because everyone knows the Steve Jobs story and everyone knows the Amazon story, but the Darren Jackson story has impacted multiple industries and people in different ways. And it's just, it has been a pleasure having you on the show. And we're so thankful you could be here today. It's great to be with you, Chuck, and great to share stories. And uh, I am really excited that you're helping young people understand the ingredients. And ingredients are different than a process, for sure. And whether it's the ingredients of innovation or the ingredients of leadership, you know, it's it's a mix, right? And so this will help them understand that as they're building their stories, you know, ingredients are important. And the ability to take the work that you're doing and then allow those ingredients to go across the university with our young people gives me great hope.
Thanks for listening to part two of my conversation with Darren Jackson. If this conversation taught me anything, it's that innovation can be applied to any industry. Whether business or higher education, Darren is using his innovative mindset to be the difference. What I found most inspiring were Darren's thoughts around the power of no, his ability to embrace crisis in order to find a way out of crisis, and that innovation is only bound by your imagination. These are powerful ideas that can be applied to almost any challenge you may face. Darren's story proves that innovation can be applied to every aspect of our society, and his commitment to serving others is a great example for all of us. If you found value in this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you know someone who might be interested, please share the podcast. Our goal is to enable an entire new generation of innovators and leaders. And exposing more people to the conversations happening on this podcast will help us do just that. We are always open to critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is that anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.